You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Ten Commandments. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphian Video. God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt and brought them out into the wilderness. He made clear to them who he is and what he required of them through the Ten Commandments. These required a pattern of moral behaviour that is not natural to man. We can follow the pattern of these commandments in our lives. God first, family second, followed by relationships and then society around us. Moses has been acting on God's instructions and has led the children of Israel out of slavery, fleeing Goshen, coming out of Egypt and heading northeast in the direction of Canaan to cross the Red Sea in that very dramatic episode, which leads to the destruction of Pharaoh and his pursuing army. More than that, we see, according to the Chronicles of Josephus, that even in the destruction of the Egyptians, God is providing for the forthcoming needs of his people. Josephus writes... I can get it up on the screen. On the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of the Egyptians, which were brought to the camp of the Hebrews by the current of the sea and the force of the winds assisting it. And he conjectured that this also happened by divine providence so that they might not be destitute of weapons. So when he had ordered the Hebrews to arm themselves with them, he led them to Mount Sinai in order to offer sacrifice to God and to render oblations for the salvation of the multitude as he was charged to do beforehand. That begs the question, how much loot did the people recover from the Egyptians? Well, we can't be sure, but Josephus again gives us a clue. Um, And best case scenario, according to his earlier chronicling, he records that Pharaoh's pursuing host comprised 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. So thus it was later, seemingly, that by divide and providence, a ragtag hosts of recently freed slaves, numbering in the millions, had the weaponry and the wherewithal, notwithstanding God's divine assistance, necessary to defeat the forces of Amalek. We see then in the next few chapters the short memories and ready discontent of um, ready discontent of the people, and God through Moses showing a lot of forbearance and acting to start to put in place the means to provide for all of these people in their journeying. We see the provision of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, showing the people the way ahead and reminding them that God was watching over them, providing direction and reassurance. And miracles are happening at every instant at this time. We see in the latter portion of chapter 15 
the bitter waters of Mara are made palatable. In chapter 16, we see God providing first the manna in the morning from heaven, followed by the quail in the evening so that the children would not go hungry. And the conditions under which these blessings were provided teach, taught the children of Israel and teach us that God would provide for them, but only to the extent to which they needed. Any quantity collected that was above and beyond that which that was necessary by God's estimation uh, would quickly spoil. They wouldn't want for anything, but they wouldn't necessarily have what they wanted. They had to trust in what God in his wisdom was providing for them and trust that that, in fact, was enough and learn to be content and reliant on him. In chapter 17, again, God acts by Moses' hand to provide water for the people at Rephidim before demonstrating with the help of the salvaged armory of the Egyptians and through the defeat of Amalek that not only would he guide their way and provide for their daily bread, but he would also provide for their safety. When Israel trusted in God and put their fate in his hands, they would know nothing but victory. Then in chapter 18, we get this interesting episode where Moses is visited by his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro hears of all that has occurred. He sees how Moses has led the people and is looked up to by the people. And he proclaims that the God of Israel is indeed supreme over all. He says in Exodus 18, verse 10 to 11, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair, they, meaning Pharaoh and the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro then observes Moses' unenviable position in having to deal with all the people's problems, no matter how great or how trivial. And he makes suggestions to see see Moses go out into the people and call out elders of unimpeachable character to be set over the people as his subordinates. These elders would oversee, they would judge, they would mediate all the everyday stuff and bring to Moses only those things that were worthy of his attention. Moses would thus be free to be the overall leader of the people, representing and mediating between the people and God. Exodus 18, verse 19 to 23. You will represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. This is Jethro talking. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all time. Every great matter they will bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. And so we come to the subject chapters for tonight, Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And here, Moses and the children of Israel find themselves roughly three months out from leaving Goshen. As chapter 19, verse 1 says, on the third new moon after coming out of Egypt. And they're in the region of Mount Sinai. Now, there are two 
schools of thought as to where this could be. Uh, the most credible, uh, which is the picture on the left on your screen, um, is at a place called Jebel Sin Bishar, which is a pinnacle set amongst the mountains and the arid terrain of the central west Sinai Peninsula, that um, contested strip of desert uh, between modern-day Israel and Egypt. Um, the other possibility is further southeast, uh, as you can see on the second picture, um, at a place called Jebel al Lawz on the Arabian Peninsula in today's Saudi Arabia. Um, it's tempting to think that that's where it is because it's um, a lot closer to the traditional land of Midian where Jethro was from. However, most scholars and archaeologists believe the evidence for this doesn't really stack up. If you're into that sort of thing, I recommend a, a website full of really interesting biblically relevant archaeological papers and discussions called biblearchaeology.org, um, which contains a lot of really interesting uh, scholarly material on that debate and many others. So, the whole mass of the children of Israel have been gathered together. They've been liberated from their hardship in Egypt and they've been delivered to the mountain of the Lord, to Sinai. And they've long been prepared for this moment. As far back as Abraham, when God called him out and gave the first promises to him and instituted the covenant of the circumcision, in reiterating those promises and guarding the lives of his offspring. In the years of the servitude and suffering in Egypt that followed the passing of Joseph, that culminated in the 10 plagues, the institution of the Passover, and the, that most brutal final plague being visited on the firstborn of Egypt that showed the people unequivocally on the eve of their salvation from Egypt that despite what they'd endured, they were a people chosen of God, that they were set apart, that they were under divine guidance and protection. And following their flight from Egypt, they'd been saved from Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea crossing. They'd been fed and watered in an arid wasteland and blessed with the means of victory over their enemies. All of these things were miraculous happenings that had all been witnessed by all of them and reinforced the already overwhelming evidence of their divine providence. And now it was time for them to meet God, actually meet him. Exodus 19 verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness there and encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God's saying here, you've now seen beyond doubt who I am and what you are to me. Look at all those things that I've done for you. Now you will be my treasured possession. You will be heirs to the promises I've made to your forefathers. If you but render honour and obedience to me, if you trust me to know what's best for you and do it. 
God's proposing to put the whole thing beyond doubt. The people would have had to have been living under a rock not to have experienced and, and taken in all of this and been utterly moved by it all. It had been a totally transforming experience, particularly in the last nine months or so leading up to this point. But it had still been a matter of faith as to whether or not those things they had seen and been swept up by had been a work of God. Moses had told them that that was indeed the case. And in the circumstances, their beliefs understandable. But now they're being offered a chance to cement that belief with tangible evidence. And by seeing Moses converse with their creator, being able to affirm that his authority over them was divinely appointed and not just a matter of tradition that might in due course be brought into question. So Moses makes his way back down the mountain and he conveys the message to the people who by this stage, having witnessed all of these back-to-back miracles in their favour and gone through what they'd gone through, are pretty receptive to the whole idea of a relationship with an all-powerful God who's got a soft spot for them. And they say with one voice in chapter 19, verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God commands Moses to consecrate the people. Over three days, they are to wash, they are to abstain from the common domestic chores that would otherwise defile them, and then also remove themselves a respectful distance from the foot of the mountain on pain of death for either man or beast. And this last element is to reinforce the reverent nature of the people's relationship with their God. God's setting the boundaries. He's reminding them of their station relative to his own. The people were totally compliant with this and on the morning of the third day comes the first signs of that promised meeting between God and his people. The pinnacle of the mountain is wreathed in smoke and lightning and cloud. Thunder cracks and the earth around them trembles and out of the mountain the sound of a trumpet blast that grows steadily louder and louder and more strident until when the attention of all present is irrevocably fixed on that mountain, either in awe or in abject fear, silence. God then speaks out of that silence with what Deuteronomy 5 verse 22 describes as a great voice. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your manservant or your maidservant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your midst. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honour your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. At this point, as we learn later from Deuteronomy 5, which I quoted from before, God stops speaking as abruptly as he had begun. Effectively, he'd said what he needed to say and that was it. There's no prologue or epilogue. There's no gilded oratory, no retelling of the reasons why they should heed or obey. Just the bare basic facts of who he was and what he required them of them in his arrangement, and then silence. It must have been wholly impressive and one can assume pretty intimidating. Whilst Deuteronomy 5 shows us at this point the people are dismissed to their tents and Moses is called away to receive the rest of the length and breadth and depth of the myriad commandments, statutes and judgments that make up the bulk of the law of Moses. The tail end of chapter 20 shows us the children's reaction to God's display of his power and authority. They were scared stupid. <laughs> Even Moses was taken aback and fearful, if Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 21 is any indication. It says, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Before God had begun to speak, the people were enthralled by what was going on on the mountain and probably thrusting forward in wonder to gaze at the spectacle threatening to break the pact that God had made with them about getting too close. But now that God had spoken to them, they were cured of their curiosity and schooled by the awful wonder of what they'd just seen. It's hard to know if their response disappointed God or not. Depending on which translation you read, those verses in Exodus 20 can give that impression. I've read several commentaries on this, including a couple of Christadelphian ones, and no one seems to be able to give a clear indication. Regardless, the people, as we learn in Deuteronomy 5, draw back and instead, instead rather send a delegation to Moses and nominate him as their fit representative to serve as an intermediary between themselves and God, promising to heed and obey him as God's messenger. So Moses draws near to God and receives thereafter the main body of the laws and statutes that the people would live under from this, this time forward. And the first thing he's told by God is, in a way, an exposition of the first two commandments, which we'll look at at the moment. The laws in these verses relate to God's worship. 
The Israelites are assured of God's gracious acceptance of their devotions. Under the gospel in the New Testament, men are encouraged to pray everywhere and wherever God's people meet in his name to worship him, he will be in the midst of them. There he will come to them and he will bless them. Thus it was in Old Testament times that if they made an altar to him, there was to be no attempt at making an avatar or representation of him. They weren't to fashion any of the stones to create they used to create the altar because God created all things and all things as they were created were, as it says in Genesis 1, very good. So the stones as they were found were sufficient. So let's look at the crux of what we're here to consider tonight, the Ten Commandments themselves. And the first thing to recognise, and it's pretty important is that we shouldn't necessarily think of these commandments as some kind of natural and self-evident thing because they aren't morality is not a natural thing it's a dictate from god to us that requires a standard of behavior and a pattern of choices that is anything but natural it's not innate it has to be learned it has to be chosen. Paul in Romans 8 and verse 7 tells us that the natural mind is hostile to God and that, unenlightened, humanity walks a path of darkness that is devoid of hope. If any of this was natural and achievable for us, we wouldn't need the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Brother Robert Roberts puts it in his commentary on the Lord of Moses, and I'm paraphrasing here to a degree. If the Ten Commandments were a moral law, and the moral law was a law of nature, killing would never be justified, whereas the killing of the Canaanites became Israel's duty, and the killing of the Amalekites Saul's duty, for failure in which he had his crown taken away. Most in the world around about us reading the Bible for the first time would express shock and disgust at the stories of bloodshed and sometimes outright genocide that typify much of the Old Testament. But they're missing one key fact. Acknowledging God's supremacy and obeying his commandments, whatever they are, is morally right. For God is unquestionably right. God gives life, God takes it away. He created everything we know and understand and a whole lot more that we don't. And in that light, and I know that example um, from, I quoted on the screen is a little, ex the extreme end. Um, if God requires someone to kill or not kill as the case may be, then who are we to question? As such, the Ten Commandments are only to be rightly understood by God's own description. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he calls them my covenant. God prefaces his covenant with a declaration of his supremacy, who he is to Israel and what he has done for them. What's missing between verses 2 and 3 there is the implied therefore. Therefore, because I am who I am, and because of what I have done, because you have said you want a relationship with me, 
this is what you're required to do and this is how you're required to live. These 10 key requirements are the big cheese. The rest of the law of Moses is merely an appendix to these key principles. These are what bind it all together. So what does God's covenant contain? A basic breakdown of the Ten Commandments shows you that you can group them into three categories in order of importance. The first four commandments relate to man's relationship with God. The fifth commandment in and of itself relates to family. The remaining five to our relationships and our dealings with each other, to society. And in this, we see the order in which we should view and stratify all of those important issues of life. God is first and above all. Second is family. Third is our greater society and the world around us. And this is God's perfect order, somewhat different from the, what the world today preaches, which is basically self above all. God and family obligations are shunned and derided, and duty to our fellow man or to our neighbour barely extends beyond social interaction to the point that you're entertained or you can gain something tangible from the transaction. The Ten Commandments stand in stark contrast to this attitude. The First Commandment is a remarkable thing in a couple of ways as it declares both God's relationship with his people at a deep and experiential level, I am he who brought you out of Egypt with all that involved and the memories and emotions that that would have invoked in them. And the logical conclusion of that fact, therefore you shall have no other gods but me. God could have said, I am he who created heaven and earth, who is and was and always will be, Therefore, you shall have no other gods but me. And that would have been true and right. But he deliberately limits himself here to enable the people to relate to a shared and unique experience, which for his purposes was far more effective and powerful than requiring them to trust in his assertions. They might have been able to stretch to believe that God made everything, but they knew that God had delivered them from Egypt. They knew that he had fed them. They knew that he had seen them through all the great dangers they'd faced and granted them victory over their enemies. Also, by identifying himself in this way, he forever associated himself with those events in their corporate memory so that none would later have cause to deny it. All the times throughout their history that he interposed himself on their behalf was, in some small way, not necessarily the primary purpose, but for that purpose. They were his people. They are his people today. They are his witnesses. So having irrefutable, pardon me, irrefutable evidence then that he, Yahweh, is the one and only true God, the second declaration is self-evident and almost goes without staying. It naturally stems from the first. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You will not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
Whilst again, it might seem self-evident on the basis of the truth they knew from the first, it was an important clarification given the propensity of idol worship in the peoples and cultures that surrounded them on every side. They weren't to make or worship any graven images because of God's jealousy of the honour that belongs to him and to him alone. Jealousy, as we understand it most of the time, is displeasure at preference being shown for another. Oft times with us, that feeling is petty and ill-justified, but with God, it stands on a totally different reasoning. While our exclusive deference to him does, we know, bring him satisfaction, it is justified based on his being the creator and sustainer of all things. We also know in doing so, in dedicating ourselves to him, in seeking to emulate his character and his ways, imitation is after all the greatest form of flattery, that we are acting in our greatest benefit. To not do so only ends one way. In that light also, that justice should be meted out to the third and fourth generation on those who hate him whilst mercy and love are shown to those who both love him and keep his commandments is also self-evidently just and right. The third commandment comes in logical sequence from the first two. If it is true and right to hold God himself in the highest esteem, his name should also be held in that same esteem. Any profane or flippant use of God's name demeans him and shows a lack of conscious appreciation for who he is and the respect and reverence that is due to him. It's as simple as that. And we would do well to remember it in a world that takes his name in vain every single day. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, was and is both an act of recognition and worship of God and all that he has done, but also self-evidently of, of benefit as a period of rest, of recovery and of self-examination. To suspend all otherwise normal productive or recreational activity for one day in every seven seems peculiar and against normal perceptions of what is acceptable or expedient. But again, this shows that God's covenant with Israel is distinctly unnatural and exclusive. No culture or people other than the Jews have such a practice enshrined in their traditions and practices. It's unique. And it serves to keep God in the minds of his people. Exodus 31 verse 13 to 17 you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Anyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from amongst his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day 
he rested and was refreshed. From this, it follows that Jewish practice in Christ's time, which involved suspending all activity almost for the sake of it, was missing the point. A point that he and Christ, sorry, that Christ and his disciples would go on to prove in their interactions with the scribes and Pharisees when it came to issues of the Sabbath. Accepting and keeping the Sabbath day requires an exercise of discernment and a fixing of the mind on God, on his nature, on his ways, on our position before him. God knows what we need, and he conceived of this institution, both in the way it was practised in Israel's day under the law and today in the way we take ourselves apart from the world to praise and honour God and consider our place before him every Sunday, inspired by the timeline and activities of our creation, because he knew that a God that is out of sight is all too easily out of mind. We, like the children of Israel of old, can keep the Sabbath in our lives and should, in a sense, in recognition of him and as a memorial to our divine salvation. So, having looked at the first four and how they relate primarily to Israel's relationship with God, we come to the fifth commandment. Honour your father and your mother. The basic principle of respecting our elders, our masters, our rulers, as expressed in different places throughout scripture, is a fundamental tenet of a well-structured and healthy society. Civic and familial cohesion and health, if you like, universally suffer for the lack of it. We know humanity is willful. We know it's stubborn and proud and often deluded in its own thinking. And children suffer from the lack of a healthy, responsible role model and education that it is right and beneficial to look up to, to respect and to obey worthy sources of wisdom and authority. A child that is schooled into showing deference to their parents, logical and right given that those same parents have worked, sacrificed and stressed to a great deal to do their level best to raise a child to make something worthy of themselves, is more readily going to accept the concept of showing deference to God when they reach the point of being able to comprehend who and what he is. Doing this is not natural. It has to be learned. It has to be practised. As Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we come to the remaining five commandments that dictate how we are to relate to each other and to the wider world. The sixth, you shall not murder, seems self-evidently right and moral, but as I already uh, spoke about, it's not as straightforward as it might seem. God commanded Israel or, or distinct individuals throughout scripture to take life and in those situations, it was right to do so, regardless of what we might be inclined to think. Rather than being a blanket decree, in this commandment, the word used implies 
causing death through an act of either malice or carelessness or negligence. So the lesson simply is to show due care and respect for the sanctity and the frailty of human life. It is God's to give and it is God's to take away. There is also a higher protection to the sanctity of life than this law in itself, and that is the principle of love. We know that the way came first, uh, sorry, that the law came first, um, which showed the way to Christ, whose aim was fulfilling the law by manifesting all the conditions of mind, all the characteristics that would spontaneously lead to the performance of all that the law required. And we'll touch more on this in a moment, as the same principle, of course, applies to all Ten Commandments and to the greater laws of Moses as a whole. Christ himself said in Matthew's recollection of the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard, it, heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so it is under Christ's new, command, uh, new covenant rather, that the motivation becomes the crime that the action stemming from it was in the Old Testament. The seventh, do not commit adultery, touches on one of the greatest weaknesses of our human condition. Our lust for the flesh, our desire for sexual intimacy and the payoffs that result for it, is one of the most overwhelming feelings of joy and contentment that mankind can feel. And God created those things within us for good, as the ultimate expression of love and commitment between a man and a woman, a type of the manifest love and loyalty that God shows to us. But if left unchecked and unregulated, those things can be our undoing, and we will all too easily fall into destructive sin whether it is promiscuity or pornography or prostitution or illegitimate affairs with others, all of these things are equal defilements of God's pure intent and are unacceptable. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. As with murder... Christ's new covenant takes the matter back a step to kill it off at its source, the motivation. Matthew 5 verse 27, in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, You have heard, it, heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, Christ doesn't only echo the law in forbidding adulterous behaviours, he also forbids the thoughts and intents of the heart that conceive those behaviours in the first place. It's akin to turning the other cheek. Suffer the insult and let it pass. Do not act, but chasten and control the inclinations of the old man in order to leave room for the new man to grow. Commandment number eight, do not steal. And again, this seems very much a matter of course, but it speaks to a much higher principle. Nature around us works on survival of the fittest rules. 
beasts in nature steal from each other all the time in order to survive. The strong endure whilst the weak perish. And apart from God's dictates that we should behave differently, there's no natural programming in us that would see man do any differently. The simple but essential dictate that man possess only those things that he can lawfully acquire, appended to those other prerogatives to consider our neighbours and our contribution to the well-being of society is the very basis of the civilised orders that we live in. In its absence, there's only anarchy. It also has a higher principle that we've hinted at already tonight. God was at pains early on in Israel's desert travels to promote the lesson that all things are from him and that faith in him ensures that one will always have what they need and be content. The manna and the quail coming from heaven operated in such a way as to demonstrate this principle. You could only take what you could use and the rest would rot too quickly. This commandment reinforces the lesson. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can, cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The penultimate commandment, do not lie or misrepresent, do not bear false witness against your neighbour, makes honesty a moral obligation and a marker of a person's integrity. Lying or embellishing the truth or plainly misrepresenting facts to suit one's purposes is so normal in our day and age as to almost go unnoticed. But we have to dare to be different. There are six things that the Lord hates, says Proverbs 6, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord amongst his brethren. The last, do not covet what isn't yours to possess, is in one sense a reinforcement of the principles of commandments seven and eight, but it also stands alone in promoting a greater principle of addressing inward thoughts and intents, not just outward actions that manifest from them. Covetousness, in this context, is a placeholder for all of our human weaknesses, from the lust of the eyes to the lust of the flesh to the pride of life. All things of self that God hates in us and must be starved out if one is to truly respond to the calling of God and be transformed into his image and likeness. We are nothing without God, we're ashes and dust without the life he breathes into us, condemned and fallible without the gift of mercy and love that is the Lord Jesus Christ that provides a covering for our sin and presents us as righteous. Paul begins his letter to the Romans by condemning we, the readers, 
under sin, unable to save ourselves. He continues by revealing the grace of God in sending Jesus as a sacrifice for those sins, fulfilling the law and offering us the opportunity of salvation through him by crucifying our old lives and dying symbolically through baptism before rising to newness of life. He stresses that although new creatures, we are still for naught without God and the risen Christ, implying that there is a need for gratitude and a reliance on God, which is only possible by having our true nature brought home to us. So it stands, therefore, that our gratitude and our desire to emulate Christ needs to manifest in a set of behaviours and an attitude of mind that in all points addresses those things we've considered in the Ten Commandments tonight. These are expressed really well by Paul in Romans chapter 12 and 13, and it's there if you want to turn it up um, that I'd like to finish tonight. We're going to start reading at Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to who taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. 
owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time and the hour that has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.